0: Good afternoon. Uh, My name is Paul Beck, and I have the privilege of being able to introduce our speaker and introduce our our program today. Uh, On behalf of my colleagues, Ned Foley of the Moritz College of Law and David Steppen of the Department of History, I'm pleased to welcome you to what is the third lecture in our Democracy Studies Speaker Series. The series is sponsored by the University's Mershon Center. And I would like to take this opportunity to express our gratitude to its director, Craig Jenkins, and his former director, Rick Herman, for uh, supporting this series and having confidence that we were going to deliver a good series of, of speakers, and we have. Uh, it's a collaboration among the Moritz College of Law, the Mershon Center, and the Departments of Political Science and History. The series is designed to promote interdisciplinary discussions on campus about democracy what its essential features are, how well it has functioned now and in the past, and how it can be improved. We also have in mind down the road the possibility of an interdisciplinary democracy studies program for Ohio State students. Earlier lectures focused on, quote, the American democratic tradition from Roger Williams to Barack Obama, end quote, by historian James Kloppenberg of Harvard University, and, quote, democracy's guardian Understanding the Supreme Court's Law and Politics Jurisprudence," end quote, by law professor Guy Charles of Duke University. By the way, streaming videos of these past talks, I don't know what those are, but if you know what those are, you can make <laughs> use of them. Uh, streaming videos of these past talks are available on the Mershon Center's website, and there's also a link to that website from the Moritz College's Democracy Studies website. On Monday, May 7th, just a little more than a week from now. At noon, the final lecture in the series for this year will be presented by political theorist Nancy Rosenblum of Harvard University, and her topic is going to be the importance of political parties and partisanship for the health of democratic politics. We hope that you will attend this talk as well. And thanks to the Merchant Center, the series will continue next year. Uh, we have one speaker already in line who's going to talk to us about uh, various attempts over the past two centuries to, I guess, both reduce and enlarge the size of the electorate, a, a topic that I think has a lot of currency right now. And then there will be other speakers in the series who will come through as well next year. Now I'm especially delighted to welcome our speaker for today, Morris Fiorina of Stanford University. He is the Wendt family professor of political science and a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution at Stanford. He's a graduate of Allegheny College, grew up in the Pittsburgh area actually, so he's a near neighbor to us, and received his Ph.D. from the University of Rochester. Before coming to Stanford, he taught for many years at Harvard and before that at at Caltech. Over the course of his career, Professor Fiorina has made seminal contributions to the study of American government and politics, especially with regard to representation and elections, which of course are critical features of the democratic order. He has written or edited 10 books and scores of articles in leading journals. His work includes such classics as Retrospective Voting in American National Elections, published in 1981, when he was probably still a child, I think. Uh, The Personal Vote, Constituent Service and Electoral Independence, which is a very interesting comparison between members of parliament in the United Kingdom and American members of Congress in terms of how they deal with their constituencies. Uh, That was published in 1987. Uh, A book called Culture War, question mark, The Myth of a Polarized America, Uh, the third edition of that work was published in 2011, and he's done other important works on divided government, Congress, and and elections. Students in the room may be familiar with his recent introduction to American government and politics, uh, the short edition is entitled, America's New Democracy. Professor Fiorina has been widely honored for his scholarly contributions. He is one of about a dozen political scientists who are members of the National Academy of Science and also is a member of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. In 2006, he received the award for career contributions from the elections, public opinion, and voting behavior section of the American Political Science Association. I could say a lot more about his work and its widespread influence, but you came here to hear from him, not from me. So let me welcome to the podium our distinguished speaker and guest, Morris Piorino.
1: Thank you, Paul, and thank you all for coming out this afternoon. Let me begin by explaining just what I mean about the breakdown, what is it? And what I mean here is that uh, over a series of books and articles in the last 15 or 20 years, I've developed the argument that the, the general interest of the United States, the American the interest of the American public is increasingly poorly represented by the political class in America. By the political class, I mean the people who run for office, uh, the people who uh, support them, who actively campaign for them, give money to their campaigns and lead the interest groups, which are increasingly part of the constituents that elect members to office. And uh, I'll spend the first part of my remarks today talking about that disconnect, uh, essentially. And then in the second part, a much tougher question, uh, why has it occurred? And I argue that it's a complicated story. Um, It starts with political reforms in the 60s and 70s, good government reforms that most of us supported at the time had the unintended consequence of privileging special interests of all manner in the United States, which were increasing at the time. Uh, Lots and lots of interest groups forming, which were privileged by these reforms. And then the most complicated part of the story that happened somewhat more recently is the sorting of the parties, sorting of people in the parties. I know that's probably a little difficult to fathom at the moment, but hopefully it'll become clear as we proceed. In 2000, uh, the Republicans captured all three elective institutions, Presidency, House and Senate. That was the first time since the Eisenhower election in 1952 that they had full control of the national government, uh, 48 years. In 2002, they solidified their majorities uh, in Congress, a very rare occurrence in a a non-presidential year. In 2004, uh, they continued to solidify those majorities. And in the aftermath of 2004, uh, Republicans were exulting and Democrats were weeping and gnashing their teeth because it appeared to many that the Republicans, that Karl Rove in particular, had accomplished his goal of creating a generation long Republican majority. Rove was on record in various interviews. This was a famous interview done in 1990 to uh, 2003 in The New Yorker. Uh, Rove saw himself as Mark Hanna to Bush's McKinley, the guy who basically ushered in a generation long Republican majority. Uh, as you may remember, it didn't work out this way. Uh, in 2006, the Republicans took, in George Bush's words, a thumpin', uh, losing control of both houses of Congress, uh, 30 seats in the House and six in the Senate, some important governorships as well. The Bush administration limped through its last two years in office, uh, took another thumpin' in 2008 uh, when Obama won the presidency and the Democrats, uh, again, uh, took control of both houses of Congress. In the aftermath of that election, uh, James Carville, a democratic politico, published a book, 40 More Years, How the Democrats Will Rule the Next Generation. Uh, Amazon will give you 60% off on this book uh, <laughs> right now uh, if you're interested in that. Uh, what happened, as you may recall, or if you're of the democratic persuasion, maybe you repressed it, but uh, 2010, we had the great shellacking. 63 seats in the House of Representatives. This was the biggest midterm swing since 1938. So if you weren't 72 years old, it was the big, biggest swing that occurred in your lifetime. Senate, six seats, governorships, legislative chambers, 675 state legislatures, not counting New Hampshire because they have 400 people, and excuse the council, so we eliminate this. So uh, just an across the board or up and down uh, defeat. And so in the, the last four elections, We've had four distinct patterns of majority control of our national institutions. We went from unified Republican to a Republican-headed, divided government, to unified Democratic, to a Democratic-headed, divided government with a split Congress. Um, It turns out, uh, I went back through history to see how common this was. We went through the entire 20th century without experiencing anything like this. You have to go back to 1886 to 1894 to find a sequence of elections that Each election was a different pattern of majority control from the ones before it. That was five. Now, if Obama is re-elected and the Democrats take, or the Republicans take the Senate, that would be a fifth pattern. Or if a Republican is elected and uh, they take one of the two chambers, we would tie all of American history for being the most unstable period of majority control in American history. There are some who blame the American people for this, that the American people are schizoid. They can't make up their minds. Uh, they just—they're flighty. They go back and forth. Uh, th- the fact of the matter is, the American electorate hasn't changed much in a generation. If you look at partisanship, and for those of you who don't uh, aren't familiar with this, most of the data I present to you is from the National Election Studies, which have, this is the Political Science Database, which has been asking a lot of the same questions since 1952, and here are people's self-classifications: Democrats, Republicans, or Independents, and you can see the uh, the. The losses the Democrats suffered during the 60s and early 70s, but they've been about 35 to 40 percent of the electorate since then. Republicans have never quite made it back to their high point in the Eisenhower era. They're usually around 25 to upwards to 30 percent of the electorate. And independents picked up from both back in the 60s and 70s and have been around 35 to 40 percent of the electorate, uh, even higher now. So the overall partisan complexion of the electorate hasn't changed. We're not seeing people become Democrats in one election, changing to Republicans in the next election. Nothing like that's going on. Ideology, uh, the same thing. People are asked to classify themselves as liberals. It's down here. Moderates, it's the purple line. Or conservatives, that's the red line. Liberals have always been somewhere around 25 to 30% of the classifications. Moderates, typically the plurality at about 40, close to 40. And conservatives up a little over the years uh, to around 35% or so. We know that uh, sometimes the labels people assign themselves don't correspond very closely to their actual issue positions. So there's a terrific new book by Jim Stimson and Christopher Ellis uh, showing this, especially among conservatives. A lot of people who are conservatives don't hold conservative policy positions. uh, We don't have quite as long a series of data. But in the National Election Studies, we have five questions about specific issues that have been asked since 1984. And the the format here is people were asked to place themselves on a scale ranging from the most extreme liberal position to the most extreme conservative position. So for example, this would be, uh, yellow would be um, lots of of aid to minorities uh, over here, it would be no aid to minorities over here. Military spending, cut military spending drastically, increase military spending greatly. As you can see in 1984, when Reagan is re-elected, the electorate is very centrist with almost no one out in the wings. It's gotten a little more ragged in more recent years, still greatly centrist, but we've picked up these sort of secondary modes. But even this is interesting. Uh, At the time of the 2008 election, there had been a group that swung out to the left on health care. There had also been a group that swung out to the right on aid to minorities. You'd be amazed at how many of these are the same people. Uh, 20% of the people in the most extreme category on health care were in the most extreme conservative category on aid to minorities, for example. And 45% of those who were on the left on health care or in the right on aid to minorities. So the electorate is not ideological. The electorate sort of picks and chooses among its issue positions. But again, mostly a a centrist position. Even on the most hot button issues that we talk about in our politics today, uh, you'd be surprised. Uh, People who call themselves Democrats and Republicans are then further subdivided by their own classification into are you a strong Democrat or not so strong? Same thing for Republicans. this is in 2008, the 2008 election campaign. Among, this is about a sixth of the electorate strong Democrats. This is about a, 12, about a seventh or eighth of the electorate strong Republicans. Uh, one in 10 strong Democrats said abortion should never be allowed. And one in four said only in the most traumatic cases of rape, incest, or the woman's life is in danger. So arguably, more than a third of the strong Democrats in the country were on the Republican side on the issue of abortion. And strong Republicans, it's even more surprising, I think, fifth of strong Republicans said abortion should always be available as a personal choice. Another 16% for sort of the waffle um, uh, idea here. So again, about 38% who are closer to the Democrats on this issue. So at the national level, among the political class, it's more like 9 to 1 or higher. But at the level even of the strong partisans in the electorate, opinions are much more uh, disaggregated, you might ask yourself, um, why do people stay Democrats if they are in fact closer to Republicans on choice? And the same thing for Republicans if they're closer to the Democrats? The answer is most people don't regard this as an important issue. But despite, again, what I'm not saying it isn't for the people who do, but I'm just saying if you ask about people's priorities, it's a fairly low profile issue as far as most Americans are concerned. So it doesn't figure that heavily into the voting decisions of most people. In contrast to the electorate, which really hasn't changed much in a generation, the political class has changed greatly. There's just general agreement in political science, and anybody who observes it even more anecdotally, that the political class is much more polarized today than it was a generation ago. And the best data is on Congress, where there's a light industry on classifying members of Congress, all the way back to the Constitutional Convention, literally. And this is what Congress, the House of Representatives, looked like in 1960 when John Kennedy took office. Democratic representatives in blue, Republican representatives in red. This is on a liberal conservative scale. It turns out that the members of Congress are typically one dimensional in their voting. Uh, this is what it looks like today. And you can see three features of them. First of all, the parties have become more homogeneous. Their, their variance has tightened up. They cover a tighter range. As that has happened, they've moved farther to the left among the Democrats, farther to the right among Republicans. As a consequence, there's almost no overlap. We had a big overlap back here where you have you have Democrats in Republican territory and Republicans in Democratic territory. Now in many recent Congresses there is no overlap. The most liberal Republican is to the right of the most conservative Democrat in recent Congresses. There's lots of data showing the same thing, not quite as lengthy. Uh, the New York Times has done surveys of national convention delegates uh, since the 70s and here are the decadal averages. This is people putting themselves, delegates, putting themselves in the most extreme liberal part among Democrats of the ideological continuum, and that's about doubled over the decades. Republicans even more, this is the proportion, putting themselves in the most conservative part of the scale, and that's tripled, more than tripled in recent decades. This is a figure that John Aldrich put together. Uh, it's, these are party activists, that is, people who participate in the campaigns who work and go to rallies. And this is how different they are, on their different Republican and Democratic activists are on the liberal conservative scale. As you can see, that's continually growing from less than one unit uh, to more than three units now. These are the donors, the presidential election donors, and they're from surveys and how far they, apart, they are apart. And so members of the political class, the most active elements of our population, have grown increasingly polarized while the electorate does not uh, really change much. And there's been some work done on uh, state houses and state senates as well, not over time. Um, this is The, the dotted line is how the difference between the party medians in Congress, so this is how the U.S. House is polarized. As you can see, some of the states are even more so, including my own dysfunctional state of California, which kind of anchors the scale here. Ohio is a little more, where's Ohio? Right in, right in there, a little less polarized than the House. Most state senates are in fact more polarized than the U.S. Senate. Again, California anchors the scale up here. And this has not gone unnoticed by the American public. This is again from the National Election Studies. The proportion of the people who see the electorate see important differences in what the parties stand for. Uh, Back in the uh, 50s, 60s, it's around 50%. It shoots up to over 60 during the Reagan era, and then just really skyrockets in more recent times. the, The polarization of the parties is something people certainly notice. At the same time all this has been going on, Uh, Americans have decided they don't trust their government or like it very much. Uh, It's about a two-thirds majority trust the federal government uh, a great deal during the 1964, plummets to only about a quarter by the time Ronald Reagan is elected, improves a little bit for a time, plummets again, improves a little bit again for a time here in Clinton and 9-11, and and then plummets back to where it is here historically about 30. Does the government waste a lot of your tax money? Well, people always were more inclined to believe they did, almost a majority here, but it goes up to a more than a three-quarters majority over that same period. Declined somewhat, but it's still up here around 80% now. Is government run for the benefit of all or for a few big interests? Well, that goes from around 30 all the way up to 70, down a little and then back up here. You've probably all seen some of the Gallup. Gallup didn't start doing these until after the big change had occurred. But uh, what kind of confidence do you have in American institutions? There's Congress. Below HMOs, below banks. Yeah, you have to work uh, to get down there. And how much confidence do you have in the people in Congress? Just a little less than car salesmen and telemarketers. So the public as a whole is in a really toxic mood about our politics today. They've noticed what's going on, and they don't like it. Why does this happen? Well, the first thing I argue is that a lot of things we thought were really good ideas in the 60s and 70s didn't work out that way. Essentially, a whole lot of the emphasis was on opening up government, more transparent government, government in the sunshine, letting people participate more, making government more responsive to the people. Primaries had been on the books for a long time, but they began to be used much more frequently, especially in the presidential level. Hubert Humphrey doesn't enter a single primary in 1968 and gets the Democratic nomination. By 1972, in both parties, the primary process is well established. And uh, political science more broadly began to write about candidate-centered politics, that the old days of party organizations conducting campaigns had now given way to individual politicians constructing their own personal organizations to run their campaigns. Open meetings, legislatures, agencies, uh, commissions, boards, etc. were no longer supposed to have meetings behind closed doors, they were to open them to the public, laws were passed requiring openings. Votes were to be recorded, It wasn't to be behind closed doors again or even even standing or voice votes, but you had to be on the record. As far as the courts were concerned, both Congress and the courts expanded rules of standing, Uh, they enhanced judicial review so people could get into court, get their day in court more easily. Bureaucracy, open bureaucracy, open comment periods. In some legislation, it even provided for interveners, people to be subsidized, subsidized for intervening in bureaucratic processes. At the local level, maximum feasible participation. You wanted to get ordinary citizens involved in decision making, create new groups. There is a tremendous proliferation of local bodies of all kinds: environmental bodies, recreation bodies, land use bodies, et cetera, et cetera. During this period, there are books written on all these subjects. I'm just sort of giving some of the high points here. At the same time, there was an advocacy explosion. Jeff, this is Jeff Berry's phrase. The, um, when I was an undergraduate, a, a course title typically was Parties and Interest Groups. And there might be a segment of three or four lectures on uh, labor unions, big business, agriculture, maybe the AMA. Now there are thousands, thousands of groups. My granddaughter and I are members of Trout Unlimited, uh, a group which lobbies for uh, governments to preserve and enhance trout habitat. The bass fishermen have their own, the catfish fishermen have their own. Just sort of name a group, name a subject, there's a group to support it now. Uh, Propositions, people began to make more use of direct democracy uh, ideas. Um, California, again, one of the high points of that. And then more recently, just but even, even Watts lines at one time were a new technology. Cheap long distance was a new technology at one point. But this just keeps going on and on, which has the effect of stripping away any kind of insulation from politicians and their constituents, or at least the, the ones who want to not necessarily constituents, but people want to talk to them. Uh, essentially, we have now a much more open, much more transparent government. So what an irony, then, that Americans liked their government and trusted it more when party bosses chose candidates in smoke-filled rooms, when a few dozen old men, uh, many of them Southern racists, controlled Congress. When bureaucracies and agencies and commissions made their decisions behind closed doors, uh, when you couldn't get your day in court, when you had very little, few interest groups to represent your view, we liked our government better. Yeah. So, what's? I mean, is it just a pure coincidence of two trends that seem to be going in the wrong direction, uh, opposite direction? No, I don't. I argue no that there was a, um, there was a, something that happened that when we wanted power to go to the people, we opened door wide the doors of government. But it wasn't the people who walked through. Uh, it was unrepresented people who have, in fact, brought our politics to the sorry state that it's in today. Normal people, and by this I mean the 85% of the country that has very little interest in politics, are basically uninformed. Uh, and I don't, I don't blame them for this. I mean, there's, it's a complicated, what are they supposed to do about health care, let alone Iranian nukes or Korean nukes? or something. They are confused about a lot of issues that are complicated. Uh, They're ambivalent. A lot of the public is pro-choice and pro-life at the same time. Uh, They are not extreme in their views. And they're pragmatic, not ideological. The the orientation is solve our problems. Maybe government in one case, maybe private enterprise in another case, but get the problem solved. They're not much interested. I want to emphasize that. We're in the campaign season when probably people like you are really tuned in to what's going on. Interest people have in the political campaign, percent very much interested. It almost never cracks 40. This is 2004. Interestingly, there wasn't as much interest in 2008, despite all the hoop that we saw. Democrats were interested, Republicans weren't. Uh, gave money to a campaign. Well, it's sort of like one in eight or nine Americans do that. Do you, have to, do you ever go to a meeting or a rally? Now you're getting to a real serious commitment here. This is about you know, 7% of Americans have ever done that actually worked for a party or candidate well we're down here in the low single digits it's about four uh, percent in the last election so it's only a certain set of people a certain fairly you know small set of people who are out there campaigning and th- this is the same thing is true if you've ever gone to local board meetings I've done this I've gone to land use meetings and school board meetings and it's you sitting there with like 12 other people in a lot of these things so you can have a big impact on a lot of these local things small numbers the public's interest uh, there's been a lot of commentary this year on how well-tuned in the public is to the presidential debates. The Florida GOP debate drew five and a quarter million, 5.4 million people. By comparison, O'Reilly, which is the top-rated political show on uh, cable TV, gets 3.6. Fox News, which I, I don't really understand the Democrats' hysteria about Fox News. Uh, you know, remember, there are 225 million people out there, so we have about 1%. The ele- 245 million voters, not people, just 245 million eligible voters. So about 1%, a little more on any given day, is watching Fox News. Some of my Republican friends get hysterical about Rachel Maddow from Stanford. Uh, she gets uh, about a quarter of a percent of the uh, viewing audience each day. In contrast, American Idol draws 29.3 uh, <laughs> million people uh, every week, uh, dancing with the stars. Uh, 18 million people watch Bono dancing around with somebody. And, I've never seen this, but I'm told it's one of the more popular shows in the, the new season. Too. So I mean, it's it's you know ordinary people are not the ones who are working out there in campaign. They, they just have other interests. So who does participate and why? Well historically, for at least four generations from the Andrew Jackson era on to the post, right after post-World War II, you did it because there was something in it for you. It was a way to get a job. It was a way to use your contacts to get contracts, to get some sorts of favors. And obviously, c- civil service was chipping away at that for a long time, more than a century, and public sector unionization gave it a big boost. Uh, public employees were no longer beholden to elected officials for their jobs. It was the other way around. Elected officials were beholden to public employees' unions for their workers and their ca- contributions. Ted Lowy once commented that conflict of interest used to be the reason you went into politics, and now it's a crime. Uh, we made uh, the same series of reforms, we made conflict of interest uh, more difficult. Uh, instead of getting Particularistic benefits at the whim of public officials, Uh, you got them through entitlements, through universalistic policies of all sorts. Um, Again, it's something we all thought was a good idea, but obviously it took a lot of the material incentives out of politics. More amorphous things like changes in political culture, you know, today's people aren't, just aren't willing to put up with kind of old time politics, sort of petty corruption politics that existed through much of our history. And finally, the media, the the junkyard dogs, as Larry Sabatoy says, who are on any kind of perceived conflict or anything else uh, as a story. The, um, some of you may uh, be familiar with the old book, uh, We Don't Want Nobody, Nobody Sent. Uh, it was uh, Milton Rakoff, who was a, an old Chicago political work, reporter. And he takes the title of the book from an anecdote uh, told by Abner Mikva, who was a Illinois politician, member of Congress, district judge, a uh, grand old man. But in 1952, Mikva is a, an idealistic young uh, law student in Chicago. And he goes down to the local Democratic headquarters, he wants to get involved in the race for work for Adlai Stevenson and Paul Douglas, the liberal Democratic senator at the time. And he walks in and he says, I want to work in the campaign. And there's this old committee man standing there and he says, who sent you? And Mikmus says, nobody sent me. And the guy said, well, we don't want nobody, nobody sent. I mean, it's, the, the old politics is you had to be vouched for by somebody. Now you go to a website and you just tune in, you know, or just sign up. But you know, somebody had to vouch for you, or you, somebody they owed, or they feared, or something. So, well, Mikva's not really easily dissuaded. So he says to the guy, um, um, after a little while, he says, "I don't want a job." Or the guy says to Mikva, "We don't got no jobs." And Mikva says, "I don't want a job." And The guy says, "Get out of here. We don't want nobody. Don't want a job." <laughs> That the mechanism of control for, for the people who worked for you was that you, you controlled their livelihood. And they continued to argue, and the guy says, where are you from anyway, kid? And Mikva says, I'm from the University of Chicago. And the guy says, get out of here, we don't want nobody from the University of Chicago. And at the time I read this as a graduate student, I thought, this guy's a cretin. But I sort of understand what, the, what was going on now. The machine was oriented about winning elections, the most important thing was to win, that meant having popular support, and we don't want anybody who sort of you know, got in the way of that. Whereas politics today is much more about accomplishing your goals, whatever they are, and sort of trying to, you know, sort of winning has become secondary for a whole lot of the people who participate in politics because their livelihoods don't depend on it. So what happens in politics? Well, we have the predictable overrepresentation. Uh, earlier I showed you the lines where everybody's down here. Well, this is the activity of strong partisans. This is their proportion in the electorate. This is how active they are in giving money. As you can see, they're the ones who are giving money. Attended a political meeting, same things. It's perfectly obvious. Worked for a party or candidate. They're the ones who are out there. Same thing on ideology. If you look at the people who are in the extreme points on the ideological scale, this is their representation in the population. This is where they are in terms of giving money. Attended a political meeting, same thing. And worked for a party or candidate, same thing. So we, we opened wide the doors to politics during this period. But most ordinary people just stayed on the other side. The people who walked through were more ideological, more partisan, more committed to certain specific issues, and they were motivated by those issues, by implementing those worldviews and accomplishing gains in those issue areas. Just the, um, you saw this in the Republican primary contest, which was uh, thankfully over. The night Rick Santorum became a contender by winning Minnesota and Colorado and Missouri, these were the turnout rates in those states. Minnesota caucus had 1.2% of the registered voters in Minnesota. Colorado, much higher, 1.8% of the registered voters. And the Missouri primary, primaries always have higher turn of the caucuses, 7.4% of the registered voters. So tiny slices of highly unrepresentative people who have unrepresentative issue views and issue priorities can drive the process. And at the local level, as I mentioned, it's, it's even worse in some cases where 12 people yelling at the recreation board can accomplish uh, something at the local level. All right, the third element in the the story is party sorting. If these unrepresented participants had distributed themselves across both parties, the effects might have been more muted. Consider three issues that are really important in modern politics. Race, environment, and abortion. Now today you have no trouble associating those with the parties. Race, Democrats are the liberal party, Republicans are the racially conservative party. Environment, same thing, abortion, same thing. But you go back in time, if you go back to when I was young, uh, it's not at all clear that that's the way it had to end up. Race. um, Sure, we have uh, Truman uh, desegregates the military and Hubert Humphrey gives the fiery speech to the 1948 convention. But it is a Republican Chief Justice who hands down Board V Board of Education uh, in 1954. It's a Republican President Eisenhower who sends paratroopers to Little Rock to integrate the schools. A few years later, it's Everett Dirksen, the Republican minority leader in the Senate, who delivers the votes to break the Southern Democratic filibuster uh, in Congress. It w- should not have been really obvious to you in, uh, in the late 1950s which way this was going to necessarily break. I mean, maybe it's, I mean African Americans had been breaking about one-third uh, Republican since the New Deal, only that. But still, it didn't have to go to nine to one or worse. And in fact, a recent book I was reading uh, talks about correspondence between Richard Nixon and Martin Luther King in the 1950s about trying to find common ground. Whereas 10 years later, uh, something different is going on. Environment, uh, when it first bursts on the scene, Earth Day comes out of nowhere if you were on uh, 1970. Um, Republicans have a good claim to be the party of the environment. Teddy Roosevelt was the conservation president. Old line environmental groups like the Audubon Society, the Sierra Club, they're sort of professional, they're upper middle class Republican type groups. Um, Nixon and Ed Muskie, his supporter, his supposed nominee, a, a Democratic nominee, engaged in this credit claiming battle in Congress to strengthen the Clean Air Act. Uh, So it's not obvious why, you know, why it's going to sort out this way. And even abortion. I mean, when it breaks on the scene, the Democrats have evangelicals, Southern evangelicals in their constituency, and Catholics. Now, why is it the case that the Democrats end up as the party of the liberal party in abortion and Republicans the conservative party in abortion? That, that the parties sorted out in ways that all of these unrepresentative activists went into one or the other. That's what contributed to the, 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 the polarization of dysfunction. And, and why, I, you know, this, I devoted a good part of my last book to talking about this, and just want to give you one. It's, it's sociological. I think one of the problems in political science in the last generation is we, we were too much into psychology, what was going on inside people's heads, and not enough into sociology, how the people themselves were changing. And there were just these massive changes in the United States uh, in the last 50 or 60 years. And just to give one illustration, we say, well, the Republicans got rid of their, cons- their liberal wing, and the Democrats got rid of their conservative wing, so that's why they, uh, they polarized. But I mean, why did they do that? I mean, who were the people they got rid of and so forth? And take, take um, one, one example, the great internal migration of African-Americans from the South to the North. For most of American history, 90% of African-Americans lived in the South. And it begins to change after World War I, and begins to change in a big way after World War II. But as late as the 1950s, if somebody said African-American to you, your stereotype, the image would have come into your mind would have been a southern sharecropper, it, was it would have been somebody with a bib overhauls and a hoe standing in a, in a field, a cotton field. Whereas by 1970, it's a, it's a northern tenement dweller, you think of somebody in the urban north. And, um, So you can sort of understand the calculations politicians are making. African Americans move north, so they push the Democratic Party into a more liberal direction, starting at the local level and percolating up uh, through the national level. That in turn drives away, or makes the Democratic Party nationally less attractive to Southerners. That trend is then amplified by the the Sun Belt, the growth of the United States uh, in different differential growth in regions. In 1960, the Midwest and the Northeast still have a majority of the population. The south and west are bringing up the rear. But then, then it switches over in the course of the next three or four decades. Congressional seats move south, west electoral votes move south and west. And so Nixon may be talking to Martin Luther King in the late 1950s, by the late 1960s he's playing the southern strategy. He sees where the trends are going and people are seeing that. And I, I trace several <coughs> these kind of sociological changes to argue why uh, party sorting proceeded in the way that it did. Um, Another thing is suburbanization and the advocacy explosion together. That um, the country in 1950 uh, still largely rural, not largely, but it's sort of where does it? It gets about a third, a third, a third by 1960. Yeah, and then the suburbs keep just growing and growing and growing. Urban goes down. Central city just sort of peaks. Rural goes way down. I'm losing power here. Sorry. Um, Congressional Districts. The composition moves. In 1962 on the eve of Baker versus Carr, the one vote, one vote decisions. um, Central cities have 106 districts. It goes down over the years. Suburban goes way up. Mixed, suburban, urban, etc. Rural goes way down. The number of districts that are rural, it just drops off dramatically. Congressional Quarterly, which compiles this classification, actually quit doing it after 1992 because they said after the 2010 census, everything was either suburban or, or uh, suburban or mixed, basically that there was almost nothing left of pure central city or pure rural at that point. Now the effect this had on members of Congress uh, isn't obvious until you start putting together some of the other interesting sociological work in the last few years, namely Putnam and Scotchpole. Bob Putnam, in his book Bowling Alone, talks about the the demise of the old line organizations, all the things that People my age grew up with Kiwanis, the Rotary, the Elks, the Lions, the PTA, the League of Women Voters, et cetera, and and how they they simply declined in numbers and declined in participation. And that's how members, that's how politicians used to communicate with people. Remember, Congress came home and they they gave a lunch and talked to the Kiwanis. They they appeared at the meetings of all these people. Now, as as those organizations disappeared, they had to look around for other building blocks. And they found those other building blocks. They found those other building blocks in the advocacy explosion. Thousands and thousands of new groups getting started. This is from K. Schlossman's book. Um, It's just a classification of um, um, Washington representatives. Putnam has been criticized for ignoring the the rise of all these new uh, organizations over time. That he documents the demise of old ones, but what about the new ones? And Putnam's response has always been, "Well, the old organizations—they had meetings, they had members. People actually got to know each other on a face-to-face basis. They were locally." Organized, whereas these new organizations, in many cases, it's a professional staff in Washington or somewhere else that sends out mailers or communications of various kinds and takes in checks. Their, their members aren't really members, they're supporters or check writers. And these are the kinds of organizations that K. Doc, uh, Schlazman documents. Government organizations, these are all of the local and state government organizations of all kinds, 865 of them, foreign government organizations, public interest, there's a huge number of public interest groups out there, education groups. And then going on to more esoteric issues, electoral groups, civil rights, religious nationality groups, children, youth groups. There was no, what um, was the children's defense fund when we were growing up. All these new groups, identity, women's groups, gay, sexual orientation, et cetera, et cetera. Politicians began to put their constituencies together through these kinds of groups, pro-choice, pro-life, pro-gun, anti-gun, environmental groups, taxpayer groups, et cetera, et cetera. And what consequence did that have? Well, Athena Kochpo argues that this new group universe, she calls it the transformation of organizational and American life, had three characteristics. Uh, first, as I, I just indicated, these were not mass membership groups. Uh, they, they tend to have small memberships of intensely committed people. To me, that means polarization. If you're a politician and you're putting your group together, not it's not Rotary Clubs, and not uh, Kiwanis Clubs, but it's, it's these sorts of issue groups then you're going to be bringing in people who are more concerned and more about certain issues and more intense on those issues. They're more specialized. They're not concerned about the health of the community as a whole. They're concerned about the whales or guns or choice or something else that they they have a much narrower set of concerns, which means politicians' priorities uh, get distorted. And they're competitive. They're fighting each other for members. We know, for example, that when a Republican president wins office, contributions to environmental groups go up. When a Democratic president wins, contributions to gun groups go up, that, that essentially they, they, they use sort of what's happening politically in the fight for new members and contributions, and that leads, as I've argued in more later work, to incivility, that, that the way you sort of, the way you get membership and the way you get contributions is to scare people and to sort of raise their, raise their emotions. So, the, um, just This question of priorities. Uh, Right now the economy has driven everything else out of the, the system, but uh, people's concerns, but um, this is a poll taken in summer of '08 before the crash, and it, it's a typical poll when you ask people how, uh, how important an issue is to your voting, and um, you always get the same sort of thing, that the top issues are whatever issues to the great mass of the American people. It's their jobs and how the economy is doing, it's their health care, it's their education, if there's a war on, it includes war. Taxes in this one were the median issue, uh, which clearly is not just a median issue for a lot of people today. Then, you, then you get to the issues like there's guns way down there, there's abortion, there's gay lesbian issues, that issues that take up so much of our politics and fan the flames of, of controversy in our system are, as far as the American population is concerned, pretty much second tier issues. And and the issues they really want to see addressed are these issues above the line, the the top tier kinds of issues. So not only are the positions distorted, the people are more extreme in their views in this new politics we have, but the priorities are distorted, that the the things people most care about are not necessarily the subjects of political uh, debate. And I wanna go back to the uh, slide I had at the beginning, and that is the patterns of institutional control. And I mentioned that we've had four distinct patterns uh, and have to go back to the late 1880s uh, to find that. And what's interesting is that period, uh, historians uh, know as the period of no, era of no decision, or the period of indecision, and which politics was just chaotic for several decades. And the presidency was ordinarily held by the Republicans, although in two cases they had to win it in the Electoral College. They couldn't win it in the, uh, in the actual popular vote. The Democrats typically uh, won the South. The Republicans typically uh, won, this, or won the House. The, Democrat, the Republicans typically won the Senate. So just election after election, you just had no stable majorities. So nobody could sort of sort of root themselves and create sort of a stable politics. It finally comes to an end in the McKinley election of 1896. But the era we're in today reminds me of that era. And I've talked to my colleague David Kennedy about this, uh, historian, that there's a lot of similarities uh, going on. Uh, then and now, it's a period of globalization. I don't need to say anything about now. But then you have British finance sort of going around the world investing. They they built our railroads several times over, for example. Uh, It's a period of economic transformation. Uh, Then it was a movement from an agricultural to an industrial society, and now it's a movement from industrial to a post-industrial communications or whatever you want to call it, society. A period of great population movement. uh, Then was farms to cities in more recent decades. It's been the Frost Belt to the Sun Belt in the U.S. A period, obviously, of mass immigration. This has been the second biggest period of immigration in our history, uh, exceeded only by that one, and a period of rising inequality uh, in the country. These kind of developments, uh, they create problems uh, that the system is asked to deal with. They cut across old coalitions and make it more difficult for the system to keep together. It requires hard choices, which politics and democratic societies have a great trouble doing. And so in in a lot of ways, I I sort of see ourselves as being in much the same uh, position. The, the problem is that, uh, arguably, that's much less serious. Uh, the, the Brits were still strong enough to be patrolling the world, taking care of most of the international problems. There were no there were no nukes in rogue nations to worry about in those days. The biggest economic problem we faced was getting rid of the surplus. It wasn't sort of whether the bond markets are going to shut us down in a few years. It was sort of how do we get rid of the money we're raking in. Uh, so, in some ways, the problems uh, seem to be less uh, serious than they were at that time. I have been a an optimist all my life in terms of uh, just personal outlook, and in terms of confidence in the American population, uh, but I have never been more concerned uh, than I am about the future of this country uh, than I am at this point, point. and I know that's a terrible um, way to end this, uh, and even, even, more, even more terribly, you're going to ask me what do we do about this, and the answer is I don't know, and I can't think of anything to do about it, so with that, I will let it go.